Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window. The podcast that takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me are our Transfer Market Insiders and Pundits Extraordinaire, Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. This week, Julian Lopetegui has left Real Madrid after a 5-1 El Clasico spanking in the new Camp. We take a look at the runners and riders to replace him in the long and short term. Jose Mourinho is furious with Ed Woodward after the chief executive cancelled a crucial transfer window meeting at the last minute. As Mourinho battles to save his job, we take you inside the behind-the-scenes tumult at England's biggest club. And FIFA want to introduce a World Club Cup and invite the biggest teams to take part in a proposed 2021 tournament. We look at the sporting integrity issues around inviting teams to take part rather than ensuring the meritocracy of qualification. Okay, well, Sunday saw a 5-1 defeat for Real Madrid and their manager, or their former manager, Julian Lopetegui, in the Camp Nou. Ian was there. Ian, what do Real Madrid do now to turn this situation around? It's been a terrible, terrible start. Well, Johnny, I mean, the, the feeling directly after the game um, and also uh, the, the morning after was very much a case of uh, Lopetegui's position, we, we said this last week in the podcast, was untenable. Um, everyone knew he was going to be sacked, even though he took the training session on Monday morning um, at the Ciudad Sportivo in Madrid. Um, <clears throat> I saw some of the headlines in, this, in the Spanish sports press, the most damning one, which in Marca, which, as we all know, is the most pro-Madrid of the, uh, the Spanish sporting press, saying uh, Madrid ripped apart. And, and that was not just on the field at the camp now on Sunday, it was also a reference to the fact that there's now a, a grave danger of the club itself going into a kind of uh, a mutilation stage. It's a very complicated and political uh, club. You have players like Sergio Ramos, Marcelo, uh, to lesser degree, Tony Cruz, who have a massive say in uh, dressing room politics, also appointment of managers. We all know that um, Florentino Perez consults Sergio Ramos. It used to be uh, he and Iker Casillas as well um, on the next managerial appointment. Uh, Lopetegui, uh, I think, was never the right man to, to take the job. He is um, not a political animal and you need to be that if you're going to be manager of Real Madrid. Uh, you also need uh, to have, uh, as they say in Spain, cojones uh, of iron or steel um, and Again, he, he lacks that. Uh, so to be sacked by Spain and uh, Real Madrid uh, in the space of four and a half months is quite some negative part of his CV. The big question, of course, is who succeeds him. Um, we've heard that Santiago Solari, uh, former uh, Real midfielder and currently um, 
the manager of uh, Real's B team um, will take over in the interim, but uh, Spanish league rules say that he can only be interim for 15 days, or sorry, 14 days on the 15th day, a new manager uh, who is uh, appointed at least until the end of the season, therefore uh, not temporary, um, has to be in place. Uh, and I, I do genuinely believe that Madrid are in a kind of crisis situation that they haven't experienced in probably the last 20 years. They've got an ageing squad, a squad which needs to be revitalised. Uh, they've, they've had a, an incredible run of success in the Champions League, which I think has seen a lot of their players sated by success uh, and therefore lazy and, um, and lacking competitive spirit, which is obviously not acceptable at a club like Real Madrid. And what they have, uh, their biggest problem is, is a manager to come in who needs to be able to control that dressing room. You know, it's, you, we talked, we joked before about FC Hollywood at Bayern Munich in the, in the noughties, FC Hollywood at Paris Saint-Germain in the last, last couple of years. It's FC Hollywood at Real Madrid, that's for sure. Um, that is a, almost, a situation that's almost out of control in terms of the players, player power, uh, and the way that those players are going about things. So who is going to have the amount of, uh, let's just say, respect, discipline, man management skills to come in and change that and, and turn that club around as quickly as they need to be turned around because they are now sitting ninth on the table. Their worst start to seasons is 2001-2002. Um, I'd be interested to know what Duncan thinks about who the right person is. Um, if indeed there is a right person out there because at the moment even Robocop couldn't go in there and, and get the right results I don't think Well I think what you've got to say is that Real Madrid is a, is a fascinating club to report on because it is more political in every dimension dressing room presidency the fact that the president's elected um, it's importance in the country itself uh, than any other club that I've ever dealt with and therefore, you, you tend to get a lot of mixed messages from Real Madrid. The president is not adverse to, put, to handing out stories to um, the local um, prominent sports papers, Marca and Ath, to float ideas. Um, so you'll see a, a name mentioned, for example, as a signing or as a, as a, as a potential next manager put in the press um, to see how the fans respond. And there's certainly been lots of mixed messages around this situation, which part of which I, I referred to last week. But um, what I can tell you, I've picked up in the last few days, is that ahead of the classical, uh, Florentino Perez um, told friends of his that he had agreed a deal to make Antonio Conte the next coach of Real Madrid, which fits with one of the things, uh, one of the consistent stories that had been coming out of Madrid through this whole period of, of uh, disruption um, uh, over Lopetegui's start to the season, which was that um, Perez felt the dressing room was out of control and he needed a strong man manager to come in and sort them out, put them in their places, get them acting in the best interests of the club rather than themselves. Obviously, the game was lost. Um, Sergio Ramos came out after the match and uh, came out with this extraordinary statement uh, when asked about Antonio Conte replacing Lopetegui as manager. He said, respect is one 
it's not imposed. We have won everything with managers that you know, and in the end, the management of the dressing room is more important than the technical knowledge of the manager, which was taken correctly as a statement from Sergio Ramos as leader of the dressing room that they did not want Antonio Conte as an ex-manager. Um, the, the, the word um, ahead of the game and immediately after the game was that Conte was going to be announced on Monday. That changed subsequent to Ramos' um, statement. The guidance I'm getting is that Conte's not completely out of the picture, but um, that's from the Spanish end. But what I'm hearing from Conte's end is he does not think he's going to get the job anymore uh, for the, the reason that the dressing room is against him coming in. So then what does Florentino Perez do if Conte is not going to be the man, the quick fix solution for him? Well, we know that he tried to hire Mauricio Pochettino in the summer, um, was only blocked from doing so because Daniel Levy refused to let Pochettino join the club. And we know that Pochettino is still interested in the job. But can he get Pochettino now? I don't think that's viable, even though Mauricio Pochettino might li like that to happen. What I'm told is that if Jose Mourinho were to be out of work um, now, had he been out of work at this moment, were he to become sacked by Manchester United in the next weeks or months, then Florentino Perez would do everything in his power to bring him back to the club. He's tried before when Rafa Benitez um, was sacked as manager um, inside, I think, six months of his appointment as Real Madrid manager. He asked Mourinho to come back. Mourinho refused. Mourinho has always told people around him that he will not go back to Real Madrid. Uh, because of the, the negativity of the experience and the way it ended there. Um, he elected to, to terminate his contract and go back to English football, specifically to Chelsea um, at that time. But um, you have to ask where Mourinho's situation at Manchester United, which is still very open, um, could go one way or another. Uh, as we've discussed several times in this podcast, the board don't want to sack him but he's been warned that results have to improve. There's a huge external pressure for change at that club. Were results to decline, were Ed Woodward and the Glazers to make the decision that they were going to dismiss Jose Mourinho, I would think that the opportunity to go straight back into work at a club of the same stature, of the same financial stature, that with more um, European trophies to its name, substantially than Manchester United, were that to be offered to him, he'd find it very difficult to turn down. And I think that's why I think Florentino Perez is aware of that, and Florentino Perez is monitoring that situation carefully. And if that opportunity was to fall into his lap, where he didn't have to go through the tortuous, um, hellish process involved in getting Daniel Levy to, to, to release a player or a manager or a coach or anyone against his will um, and he had the opportunity to take Mourinho at no cost he would take that opportunity Ultimately Johnny on, on this one um, I think it's very apparent that uh, if you're a, a coach, an elite coach like Mourinho like Pochettino, like Conte even um you look upon Real Madrid and you think to yourself, yes, it's a club that I'd love to manage, in Mourinho's case, obviously, a second time. Um, but do I want to go there in the circumstances where there is clearly major problems as one very much on the inside of the Real Madrid um, hierarchy put to me 
um, during my time in Spain over the last couple of days that Ramos has a cancer in the dressing room that needs to be cut out. And that's a serious, serious situation. Now, as captain, as club icon uh, that he is, getting rid of him will be very difficult. But I think there is now a mood within the Santiago Bernabeu that whatever happens going forward, that whether it's in the short term or whether it's at the end of the season, Ramos needs to be cut out of the club in order for any coach who's coming in to have a chance of managing the dressing room in the way that they want to do. Now, I would say that my sort of... Uh, I'd say from um, Real Madrid and from Fontino Perez's point of view, their plan A is definitely to see the season out with a, a manager who can effectively caretake until um, May next year on the basis that they will then be able to mount a proper um, engagement of Mauricio Pochettino. And that means getting Ramos out of the club and probably Marcello as well and saying you've got a clean slate. And by the way, you've got £350 million to spend as well. Uh, and, and try and rebuild that great club under a very different style of management and a, and a different way of, uh, let's say, mentality, I guess, in terms of the way the dressing room politics will um, be played out. So, uh, if not, then Conte is demanding two and a half years, which clearly, if he fails to live up to standards or to work any magic whatsoever, they would have to sack him at the end of the season and pay him two years' salary. Again, not a massive thing for him to have to do, but another sort of egg in the face of Florentino Perez as president. And as Duncan rightly says, he's elected. He can't be seen to make another mistake. He made a mistake, made a mistake with Lopetegui. Um, he didn't foresee Zidane um, resigning uh, in, a, in the way that he did, i.e. quite dramatically after the Champions League final win, and then rushed into appointing a new coach, which got everyone in Spain um, outside of the very loyal Madridista uh, saying, well, you know, that's just not done. You don't go behind the Spanish Federation's back, poach the manager uh, without telling them what you're doing. So, Madrid's in a very difficult position right now. A very so, difficult position. Ian, just on, just on Conte, Ian, mm. um, if he was to get that job, get the two-and-a-half-year contract he so desires, where would that leave Eden Hazard, a player we've discussed many times on this podcast, and his future, which which many people assume is going to be at Real Madrid? Well, I don't think it really necessarily complicates Hazard's plans. My view on this, uh, my information from people close to Hazard uh, in his inner circle is that he believes very um, firmly that he will be a Real Madrid player next summer, that his, the financial terms of his contract are almost agreed and, and therefore whoever's in charge, he'll still be there. Um, I know there's been a lot of talk about, oh, Chelsea's chances of keeping him um, have been increased should Conte be appointed Real Madrid coach. I, I'm really not in that camp. Yeah. I, I think Hazard is, is much more pragmatic than that and will make a decision based on his own um, will and desire rather than who the coach is. I think, I think it's a factor in the sense that Madrid have to calculate, as you do when you're hiring any manager, whether it's going to be successful. And they have a plan in place to sign Eden Hazard 
to make the, get the most out of Eden Hazard, you probably don't want Antonio Conte to be his manager because there has been great difficulty in that relationship. I don't think, I agree with Ian, I don't think it will stop Hazard going there. I think it's more of a factor in, in Perez's thinking of, if I'm going to spend this amount of money and make Eden Hazard the, the headline signing next summer, I want a coach who can take full advantage of his abilities. The, you know, the other dimension with, with Conte is that he has a history of aggravating every dressing room. He also plays extremely defensive football. He, you know, his, his tactics at, at Chelsea, uh, while exciting on the counter-attack in his first season, were to play a five-man defence with four men guarding them and, and a striker going around uh, trying to do damage to the opposition midfielders when they had the ball. That, that, as um, one uh, former Real Madrid employee said to me last week, would be a recipe for absolute disaster if he tried to implement that in the, in the Santiago Bernabeu. Um, there's also another key political element to consider here, and, and it, you know, this ultimately it comes down to Florentino uh, Perez's presidency. And I don't think it's any coincidence that if you look at uh, France football this week, you'll see an interview from Cristiano Ronaldo where he very much sticks the knife into Florentino Perez saying, the reason I left the club was because I felt the uh, president of the club no longer wanted me there. Um, so you're looking at the worst start to a season for years for Real Madrid. Um, the president made a decision to allow the club's best player to leave. The best player is reminding everyone about that decision at the point at which the president's under um, severe pressure to sort things. So he needs to get this decision right. I think all, another thing that wasn't coincidental is that this weekend, um, as we see uh, Florentino and, and his, uh, and his um, helpers at Real Madrid trying to decide who the next manager should be, we see Mauricio Pochettino give an interview or give a press conference in which he states that he's never been unhappier, he's never felt worse at Tottenham in his five years at the club than he does now. So uh, there is Maurizio Pochettino basically saying, I'm ready, if you want to come and t try and take me, I'm ready to come, I'm ready to leave this club. Uh, I've had enough of the situation. Also not coincidental is that Tottenham have had to announce um, an expansion of their uh, credit facility with which they're using to, to very slowly rebuild White Hart Lane from 400 million to 637 million which is a huge increase in the total cost of that stadium. If you compare a 637 million debt facility to their annual revenues of 381 million, of which they, they only make a small profit, you can see that any manager, having worked with Daniel Levy, knowing the way he works as a chairman, knowing the fact he never takes financial risks on transfers, is going to conclude that the club is now in such a situation that he's never going to have a proper transfer budget to work with there. And he's going to be, he's been playing catch up for five years, albeit with a high quality squad, but the other clubs now have um, the ability to put distance between themselves. And I think what Mauricio Pochettino is being very pragmatic and saying, I've done what I can at this club. Um, Real Madrid are interested in me. They tried to sign me in the summer. Manchester United are interested in me. An element of Manchester United support would very much welcome me as their next manager. It's time for me to exploit those opportunities and try and get out of here. I think any elite coach, Johnny, as well, it's worth noting, um, would ask 
the his own set of fans, never mind um, his board of directors. How can I compete when in five years I've had a net spend of twenty four million pounds? That's what he's had in five years. Twenty four million pounds buys you one of Gilfie Sigurdsson's legs. So <laughs> that you know that just doesn't equate to any kind of transfer spend whatsoever. And you can argue about the stadium cost, and, and Duncan's made a very good point about the borrowing and everything else. But that's just ludicrous. You cannot win a title based on that level of investment. And uh, yes, he's had a high-quality squad, which he's developed brilliantly. But you've got to, if you're him, you've got to say, uh, go to Madrid under the right circumstances where I'm given a nice budget to spend, but also I've got young players like Isco, Asensio, uh, Lucas uh, Piazon um, coming through, uh, Vasquez, I should say, not Piazon, obviously. Um, then I've got, uh, Courtois is still a young man in terms of being goalkeeper as well. I've got decent players there. Um, I can build a, a team and, and develop a, a new Real Madrid. So, but Is there any reason to believe, Duncan, that Daniel Levy would be any better to deal with in the summer? Than he would now, because presumably at that point they'll have the new stadium and they'll want Pochettino as the man to lead them into that new era. I don't think he'll be any easier to deal with, but there comes a point where you can't hold a coach against his will. Mm. Um, if Pochettino tells Daniel Levy, "I'm not going to work for you anymore. I, I, I've done all I can. Um, I've got two, potentially two, incredible offers um, to to uh, further my career." I've given you what I can. Then, you know, Levy can, can fight and he can maximise his income from, from that uh, transfer of a manager. And he might be able to go above the, the 15 million euros that, um, that Roman Abramovich paid to, to take Andre Villas-Bos out of his contract at uh, Porto all those years ago. But, you know, if Pochettino tells him, I'm not interested in doing this anymore, and, and it's going to damage you to retain me, then Daniel Levy has got a very difficult decision to make. And, and I think Pochettino, is, he's had his chance at Tottenham. We have to remember that uh, with the year Leicester City won the league, um, he had the best, probably the best first team in the Premier League. He was facing all of the, the other big six clubs in states of disrepair. He could have won. That was the season if he's going to win the Premier League. He had the opportunity to win it and he missed his chance. And I think he's right in calculating that now with Manchester City um, so strong, with Liverpool so much stronger than they were, um, with Manchester United stronger, with a better manager in charge, even with Arsenal now you see uh, uh, you know, the shoots of recovery from Unai Emery's hard work and, and the effect of having a modern coach who prepares the team well and thinks carefully tactically. You can understand why Pochettino is, is being realistic about this and saying, well, what, what's my opportunity to win something at Tottenham? I'm getting criticised for not winning things. What can I win? The League Cup? Yeah, I could, I could target that. The FA Cup? Yeah, I could target that. But this club expects me to get in the Champions League. If I target the League Cup or the FA Cup, I probably won't make the Champions League. So it, for me, it's an easy calculation for Pochettino to make, take the opportunity to, to step up. Uh, to a bigger club with with more resources, and also it's important as all uh, to state that I think Pochettino has the fans on his side. I think if he was to go public and say, "This is what I've done. I've tried my best. My resources have been limited, and now I've got 
the chance to go somewhere else where perhaps I can fulfil my potential as a coach. I don't think the fans would actually slate him for that. I think they would applaud him and say, thanks for your efforts, we really appreciate him and we are happy that you're going to move somewhere where you think you... And then they will put that on Daniel Levy. And that's yeah. important to remember that because, you know, in circumstances where anyone agitates a move, whether it's a player or a manager or whatever, um, if the fans actually believe in you, then they're not going to be, you know, they're not going to gripe about your, your stance. They'll actually support you. That, that, that's a very good point. I think Mauricio Pochettino could truthfully stand up, give an interview with um, with Guillaume Balaguer, for example, who, he, uh, who co-wrote his, uh, his book recently, and say, uh, I stayed at Tottenham um, under duress in the summer with a, a promise that I would be supported in the transfer market. Daniel Levy provided me with zero players. I stayed with a promise that we'd be in the new stadium this season, um, now that the, the date has gone back to January. I stayed uh, when the expectation that once the stadium would be there, the revenue streams would increase and, and there would be um, an ability to invest in the squad that hasn't been there before. Now, um, because Daniel Levy has organised the building of the stadium in a way that he, that he has, it, we've missed those dates and the club has had to take an extra almost quarter billion of debt facility to cover the construction of the stadium. So he has the ability to go and truthfully say these things. And, and let's, let's face it, he could use that as a negotiating tactic. So rather than actually saying them, when Madrid are trying to get him out of Daniel Levy's grasp, he could say to Daniel Levy, but well, if you don't let me go, I'm going to go public on this. Um, and you can, you can think about what the repercussions of that will be when I say that to the fans, because you know the credibility I have with the sport. So, you know, all of these things become factors in these situations. Um, and, it, you know, with someone like Daniel Levy, it very much is a game of poker to get what you want. Well, given that we've mentioned Jose Mourinho as a potential candidate for the Real Madrid job there, I think we should probably have a look at his current situation at Manchester United. Duncan, I believe you have some news of some goings-on behind the scenes. Yeah, well, look, Mourinho is still fighting for his survival at the club. Um, every match is being monitored uh, for a mistake, for a bad result. You saw what happened after Juventus. <laughs> Even... You, I don't know if you, you might have read articles this week talking about, uh, last week, talking about Marcus Rashford and um, how Marcus Rashford was playing so well for England, um, which seems to uh, ignore the fact that he missed a sitter against Croatia not that long ago, um, and so badly for Manchester United. And it was down to the dullard of a manager who was um, making decisions about him at Manchester United, which uh, I think just shows you the depth of antipathy towards Mourinho in sections of the press at present, because you can dislike Mourinho, you can criticise him in many ways, but if you are able to read a dictionary, you would never describe the man as a dullard. But the key point is he's under pressure, he's fighting for his life, he is pushing the the... Edward were to the board, the Glazers, to get reinforcements as soon as possible to be allowed to sign the high-quality, um, experienced leader centre-back he's been asking for months and months and trying to do it in the January window. As we discussed last week, the club has come up with a list of proposals for the position that Mourinho is not convinced about. He's been scouting some of them in person and proposing other players. He was due, I'm told, to meet... Um, Ed Woodward last week to discuss 
transfers, reinforcement, and I think to discuss the potential of a director of football being brought in, which is obviously a matter of significant importance to Mourinho because he would, would want to be sure that any director of football brought in would be supportive of him as opposed to uh, someone brought in to um, override him in the transfer market and cause more problems of the type he's had in the last summer. Um, I understand that that meeting was cancelled at the last minute by Ed Woodward and Mourinho, as you would expect, is not impressed um, that he was not able to, to speak with the chief executive about matters of, of key concerns to his future. So it's still very much open. We still have a sequence of difficult games ahead of him. Um, you still have a team that, although it's responding to him, and implementing things well on the pitch. I think um, Fred's inclusion at the weekend uh, was very promising. Um, I've spoken to people close to Fred and they told me he's he's been working on his adaptation to the Premier League. Like many Brazilian footballers, he, he struggled at first with the physicality of the place and just living in a different country um, and the speed of the league in comparison to, to playing in Ukraine before, but I think he did very well at the weekend. Um, teams creating chances or scoring goals, but they're still giving stupid goals away in situations where they have the game under control, as, as they did on Saturday when Paul Pogba um, decided to, to try and hook a ball over the top of, of uh, two, two players pressing him and, and let Everton in for a penalty um, and allowed them to press for an equaliser in the last 20 minutes of the game that should have been dead by then. So it's, it's still a very... Um, balanced and uncertain situation, which, as I've said, is one that, that Florentino Perez is, is monitoring, hoping that he can take advantage of and get a dividend from if Manchester United were to go what I, I would say would be the wrong way uh, and dismiss the manager and uh, and try and get someone else in. And, of course, we should note as well that there's even more division um, than just between Mourinho and the, um, the board and, and Ed Woodward. Um, the reports are accurate that um, Manchester City players were very unhappy with the way the club have um, planned travel arrangements to get to games. They were late for the Juventus game um, last week. Um, Mourinho infamously uh, walked to the game uh, with a hoodie, uh, was unrecognised, etc., etc. There was a sponsors event which they didn't turn up to, the players that is. Uh, some of them are now facing fines as a result of that. The underlying um, fact to which I think is more significant in this is that there are 12 first-team players out of contract next summer. Now, we've spoken on the Transfer Window podcast in recent times about the folly of um, Chelsea allowing Thibaut Courtois to run into uh, the last year of his contract and of um, Aaron Ramsey being in the same situation at Arsenal. Now, if you're in a dressing room and... You take my word for it if you want to, but you know, speaking to players on a daily basis and dealing with situations regarding recruitment, um, I've got experience of how this works. It's a very unsettling situation when you've got um, highly paid professional athletes who are, whose contracts are running down and there are no plans to meet and renegotiate or even begin to speak about renewing contracts. And I think and I, I genuinely believe that that's having a very unsettling effect in the Manchester United dressing room because even if you believe those players are suitable or deserving of an upgrade or, or a new contract or not, 
the fact is nothing is happening. No one's talking. Yeah. You've got some players like Anthony Martial who United want to renew or David De Gea who they're desperate to renew. Both players are refusing to speak to the club. Now, that tells you something about where Manchester United are right now in terms of their status, their ambition and how the players view the club itself. If players like Martial, De Gea are saying, well, it's all very well, you want to renew the contracts, but we would like to actually weigh up our options. On the other hand, um, you've got likes of uh, Chris Smalling, um, uh, who is out of contract, uh, Phil Jones as well, who players who you would probably say, well, do you guys really want to keep these players or not? Um, and then you've got someone like Luke Shaw, who does renew, having played effectively 25% of games over his four years initial contract to Manchester United, gets a 50, 50% upgrade in his contract because he's played five good games this season. And other players are looking at that and thinking, well, hang on, what about me? I've been here longer, I've done more, I've won trophies. Why am I not getting offered an upgrade in my contract? And so I think that's a very unsettling effect. And that's something which Mourinho has no control over. And indeed, it may be the case that Manchester United need to, to you know, cut through the wheat from the chaff and, and get rid of players on high-earning um, contracts. But you cannot really or realistically expect to recruit eight, nine, ten new players of the, of the quality Manchester United need in one transfer window unless you've got a transfer policy which is incumbent and consistent with what the manager wants. So the fact, as Duncan has said, that you're cancelling a recruitment meeting, a very important transfer window recruitment meeting at short notice, says everything about where Manchester United are right now in terms of not being organised, forward-thinking or even... Um, realistic about what needs to be done in the next eight months for the club. I think two things on that. I've had a discussion in the last couple of weeks about with with um, the agent of one of the Manchester United players, who specifically said, um, you know, referenced Luke Shaw and said, uh, you can have half a dozen half decent games for Manchester United, and you get a new uh, lucrative uh, five-year contract. So agents are aware of the the way in which Woodward acts and um, and aware that he doesn't want to allow players that he himself signed at, at great fanfare to leave the club. Um, and the, the other element of that is, is the De Gea situation. It's, it's all very well Manchester United uh, having a policy of leaving contracts to the final year um, with the idea that in most of their contracts, they have a unilateral option to extend for a further year. So they tend to leave to that final year and then either activate the option or renegotiate a long-term deal. And that's fine when you're dealing with players like um, Chris Molling or Phil Jones. Um, to be fair to Chris Smalling, he's had a very good sequence of games and, and is, is uh, working himself in a position where he probably would earn a new contract. But players like Phil Jones and, and Smalling previously, who would struggle... To, to get moves um, to a club of, of the same stature. It's no problem for the club to, to let their contracts run down because um, they can more or less re-sign them when they want to. With De Gea, it's a completely different scenario. De Gea has been the best player, elected as the best player in the club for the last five years. There's an argument that he's been the best player at the club for all of those five years. He knows his status. He knows his value. 
with a player at, at that level who, who, who clubs of the same stature as Manchester United and some clubs with deeper pockets in terms of what they're prepared to spend on salary are interested in, Paris Saint-Germain, for example, you have to renew them when you get the opportunity. And I know that De Gea is deeply frustrated last season that United made no effort to renew his contract at a point at the start of the season where he, he was interested in a new deal and was ready to sign one uh, if the terms were correct. Instead, they've left it. Um, and they've, uh, when they've actually entered negotiations with De Gea over a new contract, the offers they've made have not been on the same level as, as the amount they're paying to Paul Pogba and Alexis Sanchez. And De Gea's response is quite understandably, I am the best player at this club. I expect to, I expect to be paid the best wage. Um, if you're not going to pay it, then I'll run my contract down and I'll leave in a free transfer uh, in a year and a half's time and I will, um, I will get that money I deserve from the, from the next club I play for. And Johnny, we should add as well that on that list of players includes Juan Mata, Ander Herrera, um, players who you know you would think at least have a, a, a definitely useful role to play at Manchester United, certainly as members of a 25-man squad. So we're not just talking about you know, fringe players here, we're talking about players who've been intrinsic. And the only two um, recent renegotiations that have been successful have been Maron Fellaini and Luke Shaw. So that says us everything about where United are regarding their um, negotiations. Okay, guys, we're going to move on to the Club World Cup idea that FIFA have been mooting, which is a, an enlarged 2014 competition that would take the place of the Confederations Cup in 2021. And it would be by invite rather than qualification for clubs. Seems to me this is a commercial enterprise, uh, invitation rather than qualification. Is this good for sporting integrity, Duncan? No, absolutely not. Um, it's The whole thing has... Uh, it's been a political mess and it's, it's been clouded, intentionally clouded in secrecy with um, Gianni Infantino, the, the president of FIFA, who has uh, received the proposal from a, a consortium led by the, the Japanese bank SoftBank, but um, which is widely reported to have major funding from Saudi Arabia um, and also uh, funding is reported to come from Abu Dhabi. Um, uh, Infantino went presenting details of that to uh, the federations and to UEFA has insisted he could not um, disclose the details of where the money was coming from because he, uh, he and FIFA had signed a non-disclosure agreement, which is you know, a fundamental problem. Uh, if you're trying to set up a new tournament supposedly for the good of football and you're not telling the people who are, who are being asked to vote on, on its introduction, um, which has big repercussions for the way the domestic game is played and, and the way the international game is played and the demands on the top players in the sport where the money is com coming from. Um, the idea, various ideas have been floated. Um, there's been a suggestion that it should be done on an annual basis. Um, the one that's more likely to be accepted is, is to replace the Confederations Cup in the pre-World Cup year um, and have a 24-team a tournament uh, with 12, they're suggesting 12 clubs from Europe um, taking part in it, uh, played over 18 days um, with uh, eight groups of three, then quarterfinals, semifinals, final, to decide who um, the, the best club in the world are. And it, you know, it has a lot of appeal and it's 
it's understandable why SoftBank have reportedly put $25 billion worth of funding up um, to make it happen. But the idea that you have a tournament of that level by invitation, um, which obviously will appear to appeal to the sponsors and appeal to FIFA, and if you do it by invitation, you can cherry pick the biggest, most affluent clubs with the biggest following and the most, uh, the greatest television audience associated with them to put them in a, into, into the tournament. The idea you do that goes against the entire spirit of competitive football, where it, it, uh, football has always been about promotion relegation. It's always been about qualifying for World Cups. We, um, it's always been about qualifying for the Champions League um, to defend your right to call yourself the best team. And it, it, there's no reason why that shouldn't happen. If the two, first tournament was to occur in 2021, you might not want to have a formal qualification process as you would do for the World Cup because it would, that would place too great a demand on the clubs and the players. But you could easily say, uh, we're going to base this on Champions League results in the, the prior, the season ahead of it, or base it on UEFA coefficients over the, the three or four previous seasons going into the tournament. And then clubs would know specifically that they were playing for the opportunity to be involved in a huge money spinning venture, which is going to give great um, commercial advantages to the clubs that get in it. And um, essentially, if you don't set it up that way, you're, you're further increasing the, the, the big problem that European football has at the present, which is one of competitive imbalance. And the, 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 the largest clubs in the sport in almost every country, apart from the Premier League, because it distributes um, television rights uh, more equitably, are, get, are, are substantially more powerful than the rivals, are stockpiling the best players, are pushing the, the price of transfers and salaries up, and, um, and essentially keeping the rest um, away from having a reasonable opportunity of winning the biggest prizes in the game. Um, so I, I think if this tournament is to come in, which I, I do see the appeal in it, um, I have, you know, uh, in my journalism career starting in Japan, I, I covered a lot of the, the unofficial world championship games that they used to play in Tokyo between the South American and European champions each year. And it was a good event and an interesting competition to cover. So I see the appeal in it, but it can't be done by invitation. It can't be FIFA, uh, Saudi Arabia, Abu Dhabi saying, we want these clubs in because that's going to make the most TV money. You've got to let everyone have a chance to enter this tournament. What's happening here is effectively an upgrade on what's been going on in the United States of America for the last 10 years, where the biggest clubs in Europe have been invited to play um, effectively. It's a competition, but it's really just friendlies um, uh, around different cities in the USA. Uh, and they're paid quite a lot of money for doing so. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there is no competitive element as such in terms of uh, a trophy or... Um, any kudos or indeed um, competitive credibility. So what FIFA, I think, I've, I've looked at is they're thinking, well, why should we let a private company, which is how this was has been um, organised in the last decade, why should we let them make the money? We should go step in with, obviously, the investment put up by, um, whether it be nation states uh, of Abu Dhabi, etc., and or SoftBank of Japan, and um, take this a step uh, further and make a proper competition mini World Cup if you like, a World Cup for clubs 
Um, what the opposition is, and this is what went on last week at the FIFA, FIFA's meeting in Africa um, regarding UEFA's involvement in this, because obviously the European clubs are the ones who will and will retain the biggest commercial and TV um, revenue stroke um, commercial potential in any competition like this. Uh, they're saying, well, it's extra games for us. What do, what do we stand to gain from this? You know, at the moment we can pick and choose our games. We can play three, four games in the USA, um, and in recent times, obviously that's extended down to Australia and Asia, and we can get pick up maybe between seven point five and ten million pounds pre-season, which doesn't sound like a lot of money in football, but it's it's helpful. Um, but those are the kind of net profits that are made by clubs on the pre-season uh, tours, but they only have to spend ten to twelve days. Well, FIFA are proposing at the moment is a tournament lasting maybe 14 to 18 days um, and that's a hell of a lot more time for clubs to be spending in whichever um, nation state hosts it etc etc but of course the prize money would be greater it would be given FIFA um, stamp of authority which again uh, effectively gives it some kind of um, competitive credence and credibility um, with regards to who is the actual world club champion, etc., etc. So what you've got is um, nothing to do with what's good for football or a football tournament. It's simply what's good for making money for uh, FIFA uh, overall, but also the confederations that make up FIFA and also the clubs who will be invited to go there and play. Personally, I think that you know, as a spectacle, it, it could be quite interesting to see a World Club Championship with 24 teams um, in a year where there's no actual um, competitive tournament, i.e. European Championship in the case of UEFA or World Cup. I think there is definitely a market for it and there has been a market or market gap for, you know, the, the, well, forever basically um, in terms of uh, engaging with football fans around the world when there is no major tournament. So, is it a bad thing? Well, I'm not sure. But what I'd say is I'd want to stay away from the um, what looks to me like right now the uh, greed um, financially of FIFA, which was supposed to have ended uh, after the Sepp Blatter era. But in fact, I think is looking even more um, sort of like a kind of money-grabbing exercise, especially with this kind of element uh, of competition. Uh, so what FIFA need to do, what UEFA need to do, what the clubs need to do is get together and they need to agree a proper distribution of the revenue created by such a tournament. Remember that uh, a World Cup, um, World Cup winners are very um, substantially less rewarded than FIFA are in any um, four-year tournament. So I think it's important to realise that you know, the, the team who win the World Cup is rewarded much less than the six billion FIFA uh, take from revenue in any World Cup uh, over four years, and of course, remember they don't pay tax on that as well. So um, it's something which they need to convince the clubs that they can actually redistribute the funds from any club World Cup uh, much more fairly than they do the they do it at the moment. Uh, that's a lot less than the actual federation stroke uh, club, uh, club sorry, team who win the tournament are paid. 
in terms of um, winning the, the trophy itself. So I think if FIFA do this cleverly and more subtly, this could be something which would appease um, UEFA and top European clubs. And at the same time, I think would engage with fans. But it cannot be another version of the, you know, big fat cat gravy train, which we've seen so much of in the last 20 years under Sepp Blatter. Time for the quickfire round now. And today we're going to be looking at the potential runners and riders for the Real Madrid job and asking if they are real or unrealistic. Okay, so I'm going to start with you, Duncan. First one up, Arsene Wenger. I think um, Arsene Wenger has... No, I know he's had the opportunity to manage Real Madrid before and turned it down, but that was when his, his star was um, far greater than it is now. Um, I think if he was to be offered the job, um, he would definitely be interested in, in having that opportunity to manage at that level again. Um, however, I only see that happening if um, Madrid get themselves into a situation where they're desperate uh, to make uh, an appointment uh, other than Solari. I, I would expect Solari to continue um, as long as he's achieving results to be get made permanent manager till the end of the season. While, as we discussed earlier, um, Florentino gets the man he really wants into that job. So uh, for Wenger to come in, it would be as an interim, I would expect, with, um, after Solari had had a bad set of results. So I would say unrealistic for that one. Ian, Antonio Conte? Was um, favourite for the job uh, over the last seven days, Johnny. Um, his uh, favouritism dropped in the McBookie prices, um, it has to be said, in the last 24 hours. Um, reports that he's asked for too much money, too much control, etc. etc. I, I think he absolutely wants the job, but is aware that Madrid are in huge, huge trouble and a bind right now. And therefore, is using that to hold a gun to Florentino's head in terms of the way that he is um, paid, but also the control of transfers and the dressing room. Florentino Perez, in my experience, is not a man who likes having a gun held to his head. I would say he is a real contender, but I would say it's unrealistic that he will be appointed. Unrealistic. (laughs) Hey! (laughs) Uh, Josie Mourinho, Duncan. Um, very realistic candidate uh, from the, in the sense that Mourinho would be appointed by Florentino now if he had the opportunity to do it. If Mourinho was out of a job, he would be offered the job um, because that's the kind of uh, manager that Florentino is wanting to, pre- to bring in. The problem is um, getting him out of Manchester United um, and convincing him to come back to the club. Ian Solari, Santiago Solari. Well, we have to say Real because he's been appointed, Johnny. Um, look, he's come from, uh, you know, he's come from the same job that Zinedine Zidane held prior to um, being appointed as the full-time manager at Santiago Bernabeu. Um, I think a lot of people were surprised by how well Zidane adapted and um, achieved in that role, which is notoriously difficult to do but I'd say that Solari clearly doesn't have the status, the superstar credibility that Zidane had, 
He's not a guy who walks into the Real Madrid dressing room and, and commands instant respect. I think what we're seeing is a holding candidate for 14 days. And at that point, um, a lot of negotiating will have been done. A lot of talking to people like Mourinho, Wenger, certainly to Conte about the possibility of them taking over until the end of the season. But I am with Duncan on the basis that I'm convinced that uh, Florentino Perez does not want to make a mistake on this next appointment. His own um, job as president, his own um, election credibility depends on the guy who comes in next and therefore he wants to simply put someone in charge until next May, at which point he will have had six, seven months to, to schmooze uh, Maurizio Pochettino and Daniel Levy to an extent to get Pochettino in to the job by the start of the 2019 season. So I would say that Solari is very much uh, real for 14 days, but in the spirit of Halloween may well become a ghost after that. OK, Duncan, Maurizio Pochettino? Well, Pochettino was wanted the job in the summer. Um, he was offered the job, accepted it, and uh, Daniel Levy prevented it from happening. So you've got to take from all of that that he's very much a real candidate and uh, and I think still the number one candidate from Madrid's perspective uh, to be the next manager, the next permanent manager of Real Madrid. I've just had a text come in uh, from an agent chum of mine and he's put a name forward for you, Ian, that you might recognise. Uh, Sam Alordici. <laughs> Samson Alordicio. Well, this is a man who, as we know, has a great regard for himself, um, probably more so than other people do, um, and who once famously said that if I managed Real Madrid or Barcelona, I would win the title every season. Now, given what we know, uh, and we're talking real here, not unrealistic, that Real Madrid have failed to win the title in the last three seasons, then I'd say that um, that would be fanciful in... Um, in the extreme, that um, Alardicio might actually get the job. Um, you know, from a total fun point of view, I'd love to see it because it would be an absolute car crash. But um, in terms of being realistic, I'd say it's definitely unreal. He would get on with Sergio Ramos, though. You're guaranteed of that. Oh, him and Sergio would be <laughs> best mates. I mean, you know, I hear Sergio likes to have a beer at four in the morning now and again. So, Sam man. Okay, before we go, um, it's worth noting that it's Diego Maradona's 58th birthday and I thought we could uh, call this podcast to a close with, Ian, your terrific true-life story of the time that you took the decision to sub the great one. Johnny, you embarrass me. Um, however, it is true uh, that in an all-star game uh, played some years ago in Chechnya um, where I was... Uh, Don't ask questions. Rep don't ask questions uh, and, and no answers will be forthcoming representing a couple of players in said all-star team Diego was on the pitch and uh, unfortunately even though we had an amazing set of players to choose from and I'm talking retired players here Luis Figo was on the pitch uh, as well as Maradona obviously um, Steve McManaman, Robbie Fowler Fabian Bartes um uh, Franco Baresi. I mean, it was it was a proper proper 
you know, legends team. Um, old, uh, old Diego was, was blowing out of his proverbial uh, 78th minute and we had forgotten to appoint a coach. I say forgotten, it was, it was a mere, mere oversight. And so I effectively had to take charge of that part of the game and uh, got the uh, referee assistant to hold up the number 10 to, so I could bring on Bobo Vieri in his place. Suffice to say that as he exited the field, he threw his shirt at me, shouting, Hio la puta, which I think is all followers of Jose Mourinho and his FA charges know is not a very particularly um, sort of favourite phrase. So there we go. Uh, happy birthday, um, Diego, who, by the way, I just would love to say this as well. Um, when, he, when I met him, he came on their team bus and he came up to me, shook my hand and said, Diego, Maradona, as if I needed to hear who he was <laughs> and his second name. I'm, I'm disappointed said, they didn't say Diego Armando Maradona. No, 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 he never uses his middle name. Um, and I can say, I can also reveal that he likes to have a sleep in between his start on his main course on the private jet as well. <laughs> Johnny, I, th- I thought you were your sixth candidate for the Real Madrid job was going to be Ian McGarry. I'm, I'm disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> On the basis of my subject, Maradona, who was a Barcelona. That's, right. yeah. That's what the Real Madrid dressing room. That was a segue. That yeah. was a segue, Duncan. You're obviously right. He's missed the segue there. We should re-record it. So on Maga- the basis, <laughs> McGarry's first match as Real Madrid manager starts with Sergio Ramos hooks him after five hooks minutes him. to show him <laughs> and says, you, Sergio, you, Sergio, I substitute Diego Maradona." <laughs> <laughs> I think Sergio would sort you out, to be fair. And with that, I'm going to slam this particular transfer window shut. Just a reminder that we are looking for a sponsor. So if you like the idea of partnering with one of the UK's best football podcasts and talking directly to our listeners about your brand, get in touch through our social media channels. To continue the debate, we are all on Twitter and even have our own transfer window official account at Transfer Podcast. We're trying to build the community on that account so everyone who follows will get a follow back. To talk to us individually, I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane and most importantly, our pundits are at Duncan Castles and at Garbo SG. If you like the podcast, and we know thousands of you do, give something back by popping onto iTunes and giving us a five-star review as this helps us to reach as many listeners as possible. We'll be back next Tuesday before 3pm. Until next time, thanks for listening.